You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. I was watching a video a couple weeks ago because I knew we were doing muskox this year for December, and I was just like, that, that's the cutest thing. What can they teach us? This underwool is eight times warmer than sheep wool. And it is it is shed from their undercoat in the sun with the warmer months come spring. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. Here we go, continuing our holiday species. This is one I've been wanting to do for a couple years. Oh, yes, Chris. This is definitely one that's been on the books for a while. And for you and I, we're a little bit back into our comfort zone with hooves and horns and a nice Arctic species. So mm-hmm. it's going to be a lot of fun today. I, I just want to throw this up front. And so there's no debate in this podcast. By far, on four feet, this is the cutest baby on hooves. Done. Case closed. There's nothing cuter. A talking baby's cute, but I'm sorry, muskox baby wins. Hands down. Even over foals, even over zebras. There's Definitely over foals and zebras. The Equidae, I love them. Obviously, they're my favorites, yeah. but they're a little gankly as... Uh... But they're a little awkward when they're first born uh, with those long, long legs. So, but talking baby versus musk ox baby. That might be one for the polls. That might be an Instagram <laughs> poll. I, I, okay. I don't know if I can 100% support you, partner. Uh, it is a close call, and I actually have a whole slide based on the cuteness of musk okay. oxen babies or cats. All right. All right. So, <laughs> all right. All right. All right. We'll but see. They are, that oh, yeah. They, they are adorable. Adorable. Oh. oh, they're just. I was watching a video a couple weeks ago because I knew we were doing muskox this year for December, and I was just like, that, "That's the cutest thing I've ever seen." Running around, so fluffy, just, so fluffy. Oh, yes. Oh, adorable, adorable. So this is gonna be a fun one. I've got some geeky science, not boring stuff that you know, some some cool stuff with the muskox, but it's gonna be a fun podcast talking about a species that survives in the extremes you know i love talking to these species that just live on the edge of of the earth right like you and i do this podcast week in and week out and we talk about several different species and everyone is so cool for their own right and their own adaptations and things like that but man i had so many questions when i was preparing this podcast about how well, what happened? What do they eat in the wintertime? And how do they like how do they do that? And what's the difference between a muskox and a yak? That I felt like I should have known that, but I didn't really know it until I I did a little research. And so what's the difference between a muskox and a yak? 
But Chris, I had a lot of fun too dorking out this week about evolution. I normally take a back seat to that and let you shine. And I still will this week because I know you went into a lot more details than I did. But muskox have been around since the last ice age. They survived it. And so really just thinking about that they were around with woolly mammoths and giant, all those mammals that you always talk (laughs) giant lions and (laughs) saber-toothed tigers, those things that you talk about. So yeah, I just, I learned a lot and which is always fun. And hopefully we'll be able to share that with our listeners. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be, it's amazing species. There's a lot to cover. First, I just got to give a shout out to a young fan named Gabe. And Gabe sent us an email and it's really short. So I just, I just wanted to read it real quick, but he he said, happy Thanksgiving. Hi, I'm a, I'm a fan of your podcast. I'm 13 years old. I live in Chile, South America, and I love animals. I have three dogs, a cat, some chickens and six goats. <laughs> and he said he knew we were doing holiday related pods right now, but he wanted to know if we could do a pod about Asian vine snakes. They're cool. And I haven't seen many reptile pods from you guys. I love what you're doing and I learn a lot from you. Thank you. Keep making podcasts. So Gabe, Gabriel, we will be doing more reptiles for you. Uh, I will talk to Angie about doing the Asian vine snake because it sounds really cool. And thank you for reaching out to us. That was amazing. Thank you. And I was really moved by Gabe's email too, because it was an international one. And so that's always Mm -hmm. fun to get. I noticed the past month or two, we've had a lot more listeners in Vietnam and Ireland. So please reach out. We have not covered a species from Ireland. That's for sure. So give us some recommendations. Uh, Same thing. Vietnam has a a plethora of animals I would love to cover. We've covered the Seola and a few others, but uh, don't be shy. We we we'd love to hear from you. And I just want to give a quick shout out to Decap who gave us who gave us a great review on iTunes, a written one, really nice, uh, just saying how much they appreciate the podcast and their major in anthropology at UC Santa mm-hmm. Cruz, California. So in your old oh, stomping nice. grounds, Chris. And yep, yep. and the Decap definitely loves learning about human and animal behaviors and how they merge. So thank you for that. Keep listening. And also please feel free to send us some recommendations as well of what animals you think we should cover. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love reading those emails and, and the reviews. So thank you so much. And then Angie, I know one of the things about muskox is how they defend their, their baby, the cute babies. And I, I can't wait to get to that in behavior because it, it's amazing. They are amazing parents, amazing, amazing parents. They are. They have a lot of complex herd dynamics and they work together to survive. Uh, there's not a ton of animals that live in the Arctic tundra and we'll talk about their predators, but some of the ones that are their predators are pretty tough, like grizzly bears and mm-hmm. polar bears and things like mm-hmm. that. So they they definitely have to stick together and whatever they're doing has worked because they've been around for a long, 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 long time. Oh yeah. Long mm-hmm. time. Yeah, long time, long time. Well, I think we should jump in and describe a musk ox if you know people they think ox, okay. But this thing is for, you know, and I know you love your your hooved animals and and, and I respect you for that. And they are charismatic. Some of them are cute, some are okay. This thing is charismatic. This thing is beautiful. They're Yes, the musk ox has a lot going on for sure. Uh, it's, it's just wonderful. It has a big barrel-shaped bodies, which I'm always a fan of, a little bit more rotund than narrow. 
<laughs> in my yeah, animals. Yeah. In the horse world, we always talk about body condition scores being from one to nine or one to 10, depending on which veterinary unit you ask, where five is perfect, like right in the middle. But yeah, I like my horses like a solid six or seven, just a, mm-hmm. <laughs> a little bit of meat on the bones. But that's what the musk ox does for me. It's just got this round barrel body, short legs. Uh, and of course their entire body is covered with this fur, which I have two mm-hmm. slides on, which I'll condense for everyone listening down to one <laughs> because, yep, yep. and, uh, we'll put some, uh, YouTube links on our show notes that were really fun for me to watch and to learn about this really unique and thick and precious fur that they have. Uh, but in general, their coat's going to be a mix of black, brown, and gray. And then it has these really long guard hairs they're called that almost reached the ground. And so it has like a shaggy dog-like appearance to it. Uh, and it's just really, really, really unique. But then its legs stick out from underneath the guard hairs, and they're almost cream or white in color. So it looks like it has like almost like a grass skirt on, if you will, uh, for lack of better terms. And both sexes are going to have these long, curved, cream-colored horns. They have tips on the end. And... The horns at the base grow together at the center of the head, and they drop down around the center of the head, and it almost looks like they have a helmet on, if you will, for la- or a, maybe a really bad toupee, <laughs> yeah, a, yeah, a yeah. headpiece, if you will. Uh, and we'll talk more, too, when we get into size about the differences between males and females, because there is a lot of sexual dimorphism going on. But they also have a tail, which really can't be seen. It's pretty short. It's completely hidden with all this fur and these long mm. guard tails that they have. And then lastly, the older adult muskoxen, especially the males, develop almost like an extra large amount of fur mane, like around their head and neck that sits on the shoulders. And so when I was watching a lot of videos of males during breeding season, headbutting each other, Mm-hmm. It was almost like in slow motion when they, they ram each other with those those two horns meet, but then all the hair like moves fluid like an ocean yeah, and then like yeah. retracts and it's just, they're just incredible. I mean, just darling and their faces are typically, typically like a cow face, if you will, um, but big, broad black noses and cute little white fuzzy lips and they're just darling. And the, and the calves are pretty much a mirror image of that without the horns. Uh, the horns grow in slowly over time. And remember, horns they have for life. So if one does break off during a headbutting session, it, it will not grow back, uh, unlike antlers with a deer. So yeah, I don't know, Chris. I don't know if I did it justice. I was, I'm looking at <laughs> pictures right now and they're just darling. They are. They are. They're just. They are. They're just. They're just so. They're, just they're like. But they're like animal. majestic. I think, and they're very unique. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, and then you know, and then they survive in the snow and the ice. It's just. Oh, that's why I just love doing them, and I was so excited to do them, and wanting to do them for for a long time. Well, and to me, they almost have this prehistoric look to them, like the woolly mm-hmm. mammoth, or just I don't know, mm-hmm. from the ice age, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And we'll get to an evolution. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, they definitely are, are one of the relics left over from that that time and and still are are surviving. Now, size-wise, I am surprised because watching that video a few weeks ago, getting ready, knowing we were going to cover them soon, I just, for, in my mind, and, I, and I've seen them at the San Diego Zoo a long time ago, they're, they're a lot smaller than I thought because I was thinking bison size and they're not. They're, they're not no. as big as a bison. Mm-hmm. 
average weights anywhere from 400 pounds, which is like the female end of things to 900 pounds, the male end of things, you know, 180 to 400 kilograms height wise, only four to five feet tall at the shoulder. So it's the, the hair makes them look bigger than they are, mm-hmm. but they're not that tall. I just thought they really were, were bigger than they are, but you know, they, they're, they're, they're stocky. And again, they, they have these bodies that are made to survive where they live and, and where they live is the circumpolar species. I mean, they're native to, to Canada, Greenland. They were in Alaska. We're going to talk a little bit about that in the 1800s. They were in Siberia and Europe in the, in the, in the, the 1800s is when they went out, they were overhunted. So, but they have been reintroduced to those areas. So while predominantly today they're in Greenland and Canada, they have be, been reintroduced to other parts of Canada, Alaska, Siberia, and some parts of Norway. So those are introduced herds. And then we're going to talk about some people farming them, not for meat, but for their, their hair, which we're going to talk about. Their wool or the special, special, it's coming up. It's coming up. So we're going to talk a lot about that. But again, an animal that is, an animal that has evolved to survive not only the ice age, but now in the circumpolar regions of the earth. Well, yeah, Chris, and doing some research this week, I didn't realize that the muskoxen have their own conservation story. They're doing well now. I think there's estimated between 80,000 and 125,000. And they're doing well now. Uh, it's estimated their population is between 80,000 and 125,000. So they're not endangered or threatened or anything like that. However, so many herds were driven to extinction, like you mentioned, in Alaska, mm-hmm. parts of Europe, uh, be it from hunting or just population growth and things like that, that it took people, conservation heroes in the early 1900s to say, hey, this is really bad. We, we, need, to, we need to stop this and preserve this species because they're going extinct. And so with an international effort and then, of course, local governments and things like that and taking several uh, founder populations, whether it's 14 animals or 20 animals, and then relocating them here and there and breeding them, then now the muskoxen have been able to reestablish themselves in some of their traditional native territory, which is great. Uh, but it was – I just didn't – it's just so – Interesting to me, and I'm so glad that those people had foresight hundreds of years ago to to mm-hmm. save them. It's similar to our uh, the American bison story, right? Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. And like we just we talked about the turkey, you know. I know, week. yes, the, the tur- Exa- yes. I had no idea that the turkey was almost driven to extinction, and so yeah. it it really is just a good story, a good a nice story for the holidays, and I think it does go to show that when people put up enough stink and vote with their dollars and demand mm-hmm. change and want change that change can happen. And I'm just looking at these pictures of the muskox and learning about them this week. I'm just so glad that they're still here with us. I'm glad that people in Alaska get to enjoy them, enjoy them because that's a because here in the US, Alaska is such a wonderful travel destination for many people. I know it's on my bucket list. Um, and so yeah, you, you don't necessarily have to go to Greenland to see them. So we're very lucky. Yeah. I was just thinking that. I like, I'd love to see them in the wild. Now, as far as ecological, ecological niche, I mean, these are 
these are very important seed dispersal organisms, you know, major herbivores in that part of the planet where, I mean, you might have some caribou helping too, but muskoxen are, are just as important, you know, because they, they're very, you know, selective in their browsing and grazing, things like that. So that's an important thing that they do. And then also they're an important food source for predators, you know. Of course. So, yeah, they're, they're just, they're, they're, they're critical to that part of the world, and that e- ecosystem. Now, Angie, I found this study that just came out a couple days ago from science. And I know we've, we've, we've harped on the Arctic, but I just quickly wanted to, to highlight this study it came out in science, which again, nature and science are probably the two competing top journals in the world. There's a few others, but, but for, for what we do in nature and conservation, those are the big ones. And this one just came out from two scientists from up in Canada, witnessing ice habitat collapse in the Arctic. And this was just published a couple of days ago, and, and I'll put the link in the show notes if people are interested in reading it. But what they've noticed or they've observed this year, and this was a, a, an opinion piece or perspective in ecology, is in July of this year, during the, the heat of the summer, the Milne ice shelf fractured and collapsed. And it was it lost like 43% of its, if, of its ice cover in went out into the Arctic Ocean. And it is just this massive 80 square kilometer ice island now that is melting and it broke off. So it's an ice sheet that that is melting. It's just, it's indicative of what is going on in the Arctic. So now you're seeing these massive ice sheets melt and go into the ocean and then, you know, they're icebergs and then they, they're, they're gone. And then that ice cover is gone. So we're seeing this in the Arctic. We're seeing this in the Antarctic. And the reason I wanted to, to cover is not just to say, Hey, we know the poles are melting. We've said it on this podcast over and over and over is this was something I didn't really think about. That's why I found it interesting was not so much the megafauna, which again, you know, we're concerned with loss of habitat for all those animals up there that depend on the ice, but the microbial communities in these special ecosystems. So what they're talking about is there are very important, distinct microbial communities in these ice shelves in Canada and around the world, and they're disappearing. So there is a, 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 again, when we talk about food webs and it's, it's the whole picture. And I think this podcast the last three years has given, I know Angie and I, and hopefully you listeners, an idea of food webs and how everything is so interconnected. So I know Angie and I don't talk a lot about microbes and the smaller organism insects. I read a lot about them though. (laughs) I'm just not well versed enough to, uh, to speak scientifically on them. A lot of my colleagues along the way definitely have started to specialize in the microbiome because whether you study nutrition, reproduction, any, any major system, the microbiome, the skin, right? The microbiome is such a key factor in that system. So we're all having to get a little more comfortable with it more so than we like. I almost, I wish I could go back to microbiology 101 yeah, <laughs> to I know. help out. I know. I know. It's true though. But, and, and so from a, 
a conservation perspective, it's, you know, that's the very, you know, the bottom of the food pyramid, but we Mm -hmm. like to talk about webs because they're all interconnected. But when that starts collapsing too, so it puts everything in danger. And, you know, so they go on in this perspective that you definitely, we need to keep fighting climate change. The, the Paris agreement needs to be implemented across the planet and they're they're personally urging the Canadian government to extend coastal protections that are expiring in a couple of years. So it was an interesting read. And it's just, again, another canary in the coal mine. We're seeing this collapse of these ice shelves. And it doesn't bode well for the species living up there like the muskox that depend on that environment to survive. Polar bears, you know, walrus, all the other animals we've covered. A lot of the species of whale. We just did beluga whale a few weeks ago. You know, they all depend on that. Right. And and they evolved with this microbiome there. And that's the thing. I and mean, we were talking, which have been there a long, long time. It's all interconnected. So anyways, again, it should just motivate listeners, you know, to make changes, positive changes in our own lives, and then urge others to do the same so we can fight for, you know, these environments. Now, Angie, you did talk about evolution. So really quickly, the muskox is in the family bovidae, mm-hmm. but it is not a bovid. It is caprinae, mm-hmm. which are your other hooved friends, right? Oh, the best, sheep and goats. I grew up <laughs> with goats in my backyard, climbing on picnic tables, and I can't wait till I get a little mini farm and get my own goat again because they're like they're like dogs. They're so fun to have. So muskox aren't what we consider quote unquote bovids. I mean, they're from bovidae. That's the big family, but sheep Correct. and goats are under that too. So I was surprised. I did not know that. I thought they were more related to bison. Or, you know, cattle, wild cattle. No, no. Yeah. goats. No, and I knew that only because years ago when I was publishing research on the Takin uh, from the zoo that we had worked with and uh, studied their behavior and some of their endocrinology factors and reproduction, I had to do a lot of background research on a Takin. And Takins, of course, are oddballs too in that family. Mm-hmm. Or in that, is it a family or the... You're right. Talkins just like they're in Bovidae family, but also in Caprine. Right. So, uh, which yeah. if you if you work with Talkin, like several of my zoo colleagues, I know they listen to this podcast do, uh, they are like goats. They climb and they're always on their hind feet, pushing things over, uh, much more so than you would ever see a cow do. And initially, researchers thought that musk oxen were closely related to the Talkin. Mm-hmm. However, more DNA analysis and just further morphological studies have shown that they're still related, of course, but they have separate lineages. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that actually what I found interesting was that the closest relative currently to the musk ox is a goral. Yeah, which, I was which like, is, yeah, which is you a mentioned them. Yeah, mentioned them. yeah, yeah, and they're found in Central and East Asia, and they deserve a whole other podcast, different day, different time. So, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, and so they think the reason that Takin and musk oxen do have a lot of these similarities as far as the way they climb and interact, and even their skull structures and things like that, has to do with more convergent evolution mm-hmm, versus mm-hmm, mm-hmm. actually being directly related 
or clo- I shouldn't yeah. say are closely related. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you would have thought. I would have thought Tolkien and Muskox were closely related. But, but it's funny. Right, it's yeah, and it, yeah. but what's really what's funny? What really got me because I've never seen a Muskox in the wild, unfortunately, or even under human care. But one of the researchers mentioned that, well, of course it's not in the main cow family. Of course it's part of the sheep and goat family because it has small little tiny poops. So it poops little balls <laughs> like a I goat didn't know or, that. or a okay. sheep. And so do Takin. And I was like, oh, yes, like that is a clear sign that is like not like directly related to cows because cows do pies, if you will, right? Like mm-hmm. cow pies. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I know I love talking about poop when I heard that. Angie always bringing it back to poop. Always I know. I could just – because I was like, oh, yeah, that, that's that makes sense. And then I saw some – and then they showed in the video the musk oxen poop because they're taking samples of it. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, yep, perfect. Uh, so, so funny. Full circle. <laughs> there you go. That will tell you everything you need to know. It does, though. It does, you know, our nutrition friends will or argue with us. Their poop tells you a lot. We've Yeah, and zookeepers. I mean, that's how we're trained. Like, day one, like, yeah. you check out those feces. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Tells you a lot about the health. It does, mm-hmm. it does. Absolutely. Right. Uh, just to finish this out, uh, the genus is Ovobos, which is easy, and they're the only species in the, in the g- genre. Ovobos. And then the scientific name is Ovobos moschatus. So pretty easy. Now there are two subspecies, the barren ground muskox and the Greenland or white-faced muskox. So Ovobos moschatus moschatus and then Ovobos moschatus wardi are the two species names. Evolution, it was, it was interesting, like Angie was saying. I, I kind of went a little different direction uh, this week. And, you know, the, they call them ovi bovines, you know, the, the relatives of muskox first evolved in Asia, more moderate temperatures. So they weren't, you know, made for the, the freezing temperatures like they are today. Now, the modern muskox emerged about a million years ago in Eurasia. And again, a period of, of cold on the planet. So they ranged as far south as Great Britain, Spain, Italy. So that was kind of crazy, I thought. So they, yeah. they were down there because the ice sheets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then around 200,000 years ago is when they migrated into North America. And I read they, they found them as far south as Mexico. Right. Yes. Them. So yeah. 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 So, All over. So Yeah. So they were here. Now, what I wanted to talk about this this week, because we, I don't really think we've talked about this one, is the, the quaternary extinction event. And this was a, a not a mass extinction, which there's only been five. We're in the midst of the six or in the middle of the six right now. And that is where, like, I think it was like 70, 80 percent of all species die off is a mass extinction event. And that's what we're seeing. Again, these microbiomes all the way up to mammals, we're seeing, you know, species loss rates are just through the roof. That's why we do this podcast. This is, and I guess the easiest way to describe this is, this is when the mammoths died off. And there was a mass die off of large megafauna. And so during this, the great majority of extinctions, you know, in Africa, Eurasia, the Americas, was the transition from the Pliocene to the Holocene. And that's about 13,000 uh, BCE before Common Era. So about 15,000 years ago up to about 10,000 years ago. 
is when we started to see this mass die off. And this is when the planet started warming, you know, not like we're seeing today because I don't want people to think, oh, this is a normal trend. Yes, the earth does get warm and get cold. It, it, it does. We know that it happens, but not at the rate that it's happening now because of carbon in the atmosphere. We, kn we, we know that. There's no argument there. Now, why this die-off happened, and the die-off didn't happen in a few hundred years like we're seeing now. This happened over a couple thousand years or a few thousand years for all these animals to die off. And the three main hypotheses is first was climate change. Okay. Again, over the, th the thousands of years, major ice caps or ice sheets completely retreated. So, you know, like you said, you had muskox in Mexico. Well, all that ice up North America, Canada retreated to the poles. So muskox moved with it. There is a prehistoric overkill hypothesis which is man caused this or helped cause it over hunting moved in disrupting things like that this one i haven't seen this one and this one i i find quite interesting is the 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 hypothesis is the extinction of the woolly mammoth changed grasslands to birch forests okay hmm. Then they say massive like forest fires, it's natural, that happens, helped change the climate. Again, dumping a bunch of carbon in the atmosphere so the earth warmed up quicker. So mammoths, when you take away that mega fauna, that massive grazing impact on the environment, the grasslands gave way to forests. And, and it changed the planet. So I go back to, oh, I forgot his name, the elephant episode. Alan Savoy, I think is his name, where he, he, he told Angola to call 40,000 elephants, that the elephants were causing desertification. And when they removed the elephants, the deserts, it, it accelerated. And he's like, oh, bring the, man, bring, bring, the mammoths, <laughs> Oops. bring the elephants back. Yeah. Bring the elephants back. Yeah. So... Again, I thought that was an interesting hypothesis that when you remove something such a, has such a massive impact on the environment and changes the planet. So anyways, we know that that happened and that there was this massive decline in megafauna, which the muskox barely survived. Kind of like, I think we go back to cheetah, where the cheetah barely survived this change. So that muskox about 12,000 years ago almost went extinct like mammoths. Almost. But they hung on. They hung on just barely enough to where we have them today. And Chris, I'm just so glad we have them today. They're beautiful to look at. Their behaviors are amazing. And as you mentioned, the way that they've evolved over time to live in the Arctic is just super impressive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now... Looking at some of the facts about them, because I know we want to get to the hair coats and some of the behaviors. Now, I, I did read females can live up to 20 years, but I got to give it to the males, male muck socks. They have a tough average. They can only, they only live about half that time because the breeding season's tough and they're living in a very harsh environment. And so 
as males, the fighting to protect the females and breeding rights and stuff wears and tears them down. So their lifespan is half that of a, of a female muskox. Now, I'm not saying female muskox have it easy because raising a baby in that environment has got to be rough. But, you know, there you go. The males, get, you know, they have it a little tough up there. Yes, Chris, it is a hard life. And for ones that do make it into a little bit older muskox age, I was reading that a lot of times excessive wear on their molar teeth can be a problem later on in life and they can't digest food and then they end up starving as well. So, and then there's all the predators too. So it's yeah. not, it's yeah. not easy to be a muskox. No, no. And we'll get to diet too, about what, how they eat and how they survive in the winters, you know, but you know, they, they, they do have a little tough and I mean, you know, they, they can run up to 37 miles per hour or 60 kilometers per hour. So they can't escape predators and we're going to get to the, the predator thing here in a minute, but you know, it's just, it's a tough life up there. But one of the things they have that helps protect them that we're dying to get to is this hair, this coat that keeps them warm, that protects them from the elements. And I guess is like incredible soft fur or not fur, but wool. Mm-hmm. Is a good thing to put, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. And well, in general, can be, it can be divided into two types. There's these guard hairs, which are a lot longer, almost outer hairs, and they continually grow and they give them that shaggy long coat, if you will. And in older musk oxen, some of these guard hairs, depending on their age, can almost reach the ground. Uh, so they're really cool. It like looks like a skirt. It's just really cute. Um And these help protect them against wind and rain and insects. But the second type of fur in the musk ox, which they're famous for, is the undercoat, which is, or under wool, if you will, which is known as quiviat. Mm -hmm. And it's a a fantastic Scrabble word for any of my Scrabble friends out there. (laughs) Because in the English language, it's usually Q followed by a U. But this is actually Q-I-V-I-U-T. So if you got that random cue and you don't know what to do with it and you're playing Scrabble, think of Kiviat. And what I found fascinating, and I went down, I went down the YouTube tunnel mm. watching how this is removed and all, it's just amazing. Uh, Kiviat, this underwool, is eight times warmer than sheep wool. And it is, it is shed from their undercoat in the sun with the warmer months come spring. And anybody that's ever had like a pet that has maybe an under an undercoat like a husky or something like that, which I had I, I rescued a husky many, many years ago. Sinatra loved him. He was amazing. But mm-hmm. boy did he shed. And when he blew his undercoat, it was a mess. But with oh, musk, yeah. Oh, it was just a mess. But you just loved. I mean, I think I I collected so much hair one time I was gonna make a pillow out of it. I don't think I ever and <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately I don't sew, so I never did. But it was like so much of the and it was like this and it's like this like wool. Well the musk oxen, their fur undercoat, this quiviat, is amazing when it's shed out. And it sh- it's called a synchronous shed. So unlike certain dogs, like my lab mix now that sheds pretty much year-round, <laughs> asynchronous shedding, like anytime randomly, uh, the quiviat is shed out in like sheets almost, if you will. And it's supposed to be softer than cashmere. Mm-hmm. And... It's finer than sheep's wool. And then to top it off even more, 
is it doesn't shrink. So anybody who's had a wool sweater and mistakenly put it in the dryer knows that that's a big problem. Well, mm-hmm. Kibiat does not shrink. So it's really highly coveted and it's often used for hats and scarves. Uh, and it's really, really expensive. Um, and can call co- like a hat can cost more than like $300 us. Wow. But I guess wow. it lasts a long time. So I've never seen any, mm-hmm. uh, but hint, hint, any, any Christmas, uh, products out there. <laughs> yeah. Because what I found really important is that when the musk auction that are under human care, that are partially, mostly domesticated, if you will, in these, some of these farms is they're not harmed during the shedding process. I watched a very calming, almost Zen video of a, of a woman, uh, and, and the process of how they comb out the musk oxen hair. And it was just, it was really, really interesting because it, it comes off in sheets and she just has a comb and she just slowly is moving from the backbone down as the animal, it, the animal is in a modified squeeze cage, but it's mm-hmm. eating, it's happy, it didn't care at all. They did mention that some of the musk oxen are a little bit more wily than the female yeah. that they were demonstrating in the video. But it, it it makes the animal feel better too, right? To get all that undercoat mm-hmm. off. And then, of course, uh, people collect it and then clean it and do all these these things to it, which was above above my pay grade, to then turn it into clothing. So it's just really, really impressive. And, of course, for the wild muskox, the quivet will blow off itself um, in large chunks. And so... Depending if you're out there in the springtime and you happen to see one, it looks like it's just almost sickly <laughs> or it has patches yeah. of large patches of fur missing. It's not. That's just yeah, how yeah. it blow how it blows its undercoat. But the guard hairs, right. of course, the long hairs, it does keep year round. Right, 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 right. And I I, I, I want to talk about that in a second. I do want to say that the they I did read that the wool is better formed you know these places where they've reintroduced uh, musk ox let them roam and then collect them to collect the hair versus say hunters that go out and collect hair they say the quality is much much less anybody that goes out and hunts musk ox and then tries to get the the undercoat you know it's probably a timing thing and everything like that too so it's my my one of my conservation tips of the week is musk musk ox wool is sustainable that it's one of the reasons they've reintroduced them to alaska and and have increased their numbers because of that so i think it's a good thing you know it's it's a byproduct without hurting the animal or, or harming the animal oh yeah chris uh, we'll put the video on the show notes but watching watching the caretaker comb this kiviat down and it's really clean on the inside because it's it's so dense yeah. that like Dirt can't literally, you know, can't penetrate through those guard hairs and then onto the skin. So it helps keep the animal free from parasites and things like that. But yeah, it was a really like nice process. And uh, like I said, the animals, the musk ox didn't seem stressed at all. In fact, it's probably somewhat of a relief. Yeah. And I, and I already see somebody writing that email. I, yeah. Ideally, you want these musk ox free, roaming, you know, every animal we want just free roaming on earth. But the fact that we can find something useful makes people want to breed them, you know, not domesticate them, but keep them, increase their numbers when they're 
you know, they're at least concerned right now, but with what's going on in the Arctic, I could see trouble for them in the future. I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing to increase their numbers and give them places to, to roam and do what they do. So, you know, that's why I, I think it's a good thing. But what I wanted to talk about, Angie, is because with muskox years ago, not too many years ago, this is like four years ago, five years ago, I reviewed a paper. And one of the things we do in academia is we have to do uh, article reviews. It's peer reviewed, right? So we submit journal articles and other people submit journal articles to a journal. The journal reaches out to experts in the field and asks them to read and evaluate the scientific validity of the paper. And I got to review this article that eventually got published in PLOS One. And the title of it, this is a great title. Show me your rump hair and I will tell you what you ate. I <laughs> so, love it. Yes. And it's the, the dietary history of mux oxen revealed by sequential stable isotope analysis of guard hairs. And the re- I remember reading this. I was like, muskox, what is this? And it, got, it showed up in my inbox. I was like, heck yeah, I'll review this paper. And when I was reading through it, I, I was thinking, you know, this did have a lot of conservation value. And because these guard hairs are so long, you know, I'll just kind of sum this article up, but the, the length's up to 60 centimeters, which can be almost two feet long. So very, very long, right? And they grow for about three to four years. So what this paper did is they were tracking nitrogen uh, ratios or nitrogen isotopes in the hair because hair grows so, so slowly and they were able to track the nitrogen in the diet of this musk oxen, which in turn they could look at and, and evaluate, okay, what were they eating or, or how much nutrition were they getting during different seasons of the year, things like that. And so what they did find with this is that, yeah, during the winter, there was lower nitrogen values, which means the muskox weren't eating as much, which you would suspect. In the spring, there was obviously higher nitrogen values. Now, again, here's an animal that has extremely long hair. And so it made sense to do a study like this to show, you know, a dietary history over years and years and years. So it, it just, it, I think it was an important paper. And the reason I, I recommended it to get published and it eventually did get published in this journal is because it was showing how hair can be used to show dietary fluctuations in animals. You sure. Know, us too. I mean, we can yeah. Well, animals, and it's, but, but animals too. and it's not invasive for the most part. So no. that that's no. always wonderful too. when you can learn a whole bunch of scientific information and data about an animal without have to without having to take a blood draw or any kind of restraint or anything like that a piece of hair can tell a, a lot a lot of history and well, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and so can feces yeah. but feces is not is, is only going to tell you the immediate <laughs> yeah. of what they ate in the last depending right. on their uh depending on their uh, digestive retention rate what they ate 24 to 48 hours ago it's not going to tell you what they ate last summer right or two, two and a half years. Yeah. They, they were able to show two and a half years and they have a, ne- a neat graph that kind of shows the fluctuations and the, they correlate it with temperature and ice and, and snow. And you can see when there was heavy snow that really dropped and it just showed the history. And I think the impact of this paper specifically was just to show that you could do this. 
Mm-hmm. But from my perspective, it was so cool that they used muskox, and I learned about muskox then. And and then you could apply this to other species. But yeah, I thought it was cool. I thought it was just a cool paper. So. And here we are several years later, full circle, <laughs> talking about giving them a whole podcast, an international podcast. Yes. So that's awesome. And now, Crystal, <laughs> that begs the question is, what do they eat on the, in the winter? How do they survive in this harsh Arctic, rocky climate? And I think it's, and it must be pointed out too, that in the Arctic, trees don't grow. It's too cold. Mm-hmm. So it's not like mm-hmm. there's trees and bark and things like that. So what are they eating? Well, it's, okay, in the spring, summer, which is short up there, it's not very long, but they're, you know, they, they do eat a lot of grasses and other wild plants. So during that period, it's, it's kind of like, you can, I know bears hibernate, but you know, when you see bears coming out of hibernation, they're very skinny. They go out and eat, 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 get really fat for the winter and then go sleep it off. Mm-hmm. Muskox kind of do similar things. So in the spring, summer, they're eating a lot of this plant matter, putting on weight, especially for a pregnant female or a nursing female, you know, a lot of nutrition there. The winter months... Okay, so they, they do survive a little bit on that fat, but then they do get things like lichen, moss, roots, dwarf willows and birch trees, other vegetation that they like root through the snow and get down to. So, but I do know, like you talked about feces, their feces in the spring, summer is very moist, very... the the paper I was reading or the article I was reading was talking about generally the digestive system. It doesn't stay in the digestive system very long, probably because they're eating so much. So they get as much nutrition as they can out of it. And then they poop it out Mm -hmm. in the winter. Their poops very dry. It looks like it's been in their digestive system a lot longer trying to get all those nutrients out because they're not eating as much. So whatever they can get gives them some supplementary nutrition while probably living off body reserves for a little bit. So they're very well adapted, actually. Like, very crazy. Oh, yeah, Chris. And I was reading, too, that, of course, like you mentioned, they put on a lot of fat. But another adaptation they have is they have a slow metabolic rate. So Mm. they're not burning, burning, burning all the time and needing more energy input, which if, if you or I spent time in that cold weather, even if we had on our big winter coats and all that, it would really, really, our metabolic rate would definitely increase to, to keep burning fat to keep us warm. So they're able to to control that a little bit, which I found that very, very interesting, as far as one of one of their survival tactics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now talking about tactics, okay. So the predators, you know, Angie already said bears, polar bears, grizzly bears, Arctic wolves are about half of all muskox that are preyed upon are due to to, to wolves. Okay, so they chase them down and, and will take a, a muskox occasionally. The bears usually go for calves or adults that are sick or injured, you know, or on their way out. This is a good lead up to behavior because of all the things, I've, uh, the first thing I would think about whenever I thought about muskox behavior is years and years ago as a kid, seeing videos of them, how they protect their calves. And I can't wait till you talk about this. I'm like so excited to hear about this because it's just, it's an amazing behavior. Yes, Chris. It's it's really quite unique in, in the uh, Bovidae family because in general, 
we think of anything with hoofs and horns as either fight animals that are going to, when they're, when they're under threat, they're going to charge because they have horns or, and they're tough. Uh, I think of sable antelope, things like that. Talking. And then we also have a lot of flight animals. If you think of a goat or something like, or a sheep, they're, they're probably just going to run from the predator for the most part. It mm-hmm. depends mm-hmm. on the situation, but musk oxen fall somewhere in the middle. Because as Chris mentioned, they can run pretty fast, 25 miles per hour, uh, up to 37 miles per hour, or 60 kilometers per hour. But they don't like to run because they actually can overheat pretty easily, depending on what time of year it is. And so in general, one of the strategies that they've adopted is to just stand firm. So they don't run towards the predator and they don't run away from the predator. And so they basically face the predator together in their herd. They'll all line up with their heads down and their horns facing the attacker. Now, any of the calves or yearlings are going to be located behind the adults, which are either going to form a line or a circle, basically depending on what type of predator is. Is it a solo predator, like just a bear, or is it like a pack of wolves? So there's going to be a little bit different strategies going on. But in general, the calves are always going to be in the center of the herd, protected, hanging out in that underneath that underskirt. <laughs> Keep me far. That's where I would want to be yeah. if I saw yep, yep, yep. A, bear, a bear coming, right? Yep, yep. And they just hang tight. And at, if the predator continues to approach, they just headbutt them. And then if the predator isn't scared away just by their standing strong and their snorting or roaring or other vocalizations and just being tough, if it approaches it, then the herd will use their horns to basically hook the predator and, and or trample them. So throw them, throw them or headbutt, throw and trample is basically Buffalo way. It's basically their way. And so it's just really, really interesting. It's it's very collaborative. And as I move more into their social behaviors, it's it's complex. It's it's not a one size fits all. Like they're able to gauge what type of predator it is. Is it even a predator? Uh, how many predators are out there? How many of them are hanging out? Because musk oxen, sometimes the herd dynamics will change depending on the season. There might only be 12 of them or there might be 50 of them. And that's going to influence <laughs> how, how you're able to stand up to a predator. And so it's really dynamic and researchers are just still wanting to understand more of it. Uh, not only because it's a fascinating social cooperative behavior. So when we start thinking of signs of intelligence and things like that, um, it, it begs the question, like the, they know what they're doing and, and it works and they're able to change strategies depending on the predator. Uh, but it, it also is important to help to try to save them is, uh, from climate change and other, other encroaching issues uh, that they face. And it's really critical for their survival, especially in the wintertime when the herds can increase up to 60 animals or so. But researchers are also st- starting to understand more about within the herd dynamics. And we talk about this a lot. We've talked about with wolves, with elephants, but researchers are reporting that musk oxen have um, a highly ordered social structure similar to elephants. So it's going to be matriarchal. And that's going to be based on a, a dominance. So 
the de- more dominant the female, uh, the more in charge she is, the more resources she gets over the less dominant female, the subordinate and or the ju- and or the juvenile muskoxen. And the males also have their own dominance structure throughout the herd, uh, which is really important, of course, for breeding rights um, and, and then to access food and other resources. And male dominance is settled through these headbutts. They're called it's called a Russian butt. So they rush each other and they headbutt each other. <laughs> and usually the the more subordinate male muskox will realize pretty quickly that he's not strong enough and he'll back down. In fact, a lot of these dominant fights or breeding right fights, they, they don't they don't end in death or anything like that typically. Because the horns of males are much more massive at the base than the females, it's uh, it comes to the centerpiece to form what is called like a large boss, or I call it like a a crash a, a crash helmet, uh, if you will. Mm-hmm. And of course, keep in mind too that they have a reinforced skull that's thicker and it provides cushion uh, for you know, these, the, the, the impact, because I was watching one video where when the two males came together, you can hear that crash. It's like watching oh, yeah. American football. And sometimes oh. you just hear those, those two helmets go at each other and you're thinking, or I'm thinking, ah, I, if my sons want to play football, I hope they want to be a kicker. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, just, but I know uh, you, I mean, you were, you were, you were defense with football, right? So you took some Wait. blows. What, what animal? What, what are we? Where? What, what are we talking about today? We're talking about what you animal? and your football play. <laughs> are we talking about what animal are we covering? <laughs> huh? Yeah, no. <laughs> I think I told. I think we talked about this before. I did when I was playing football because I played in college. I felt I was getting dumber. I just did the concussion force. Like I just was slowing down, slurring my words, forgetful, and you know, thankfully I overcame that. Eventually, got a PhD, but. I know, Chris. Like, don't you wish you were a muskox that had this like reinforced head, large head boss, and a thick skull, and could you know for them yeah. it's it's no sweat off their back. I have to give the females a shout out too because they need to determine dominance, and they usually do this by pushing, shoving, and chasing. So not as not as much headbutts. They're a little bit they're a little bit more respectable, if you will. And now calves are lowest in a hierarchy on the social order, uh, but they do also have their own dominance. And it's pretty much determined through play, sometimes chasing, sometimes mounting. Uh, but I love it. And I can relate to this with watching my own pets, uh, my own dogs, and even horses, uh, foals, where they play king of the mountain. So they have a lot mm-hmm, of fun playing mm-hmm. uh, and growing up together, which is super cute. And Chris, part of their complex social arrangement is uh, vocalizations to help communicate with one another. And so what I found super fascinating is that the adults, the adults, especially the bulls, they roar is one of their main vocalizations. And to the human ear, it, it does sound like a lion roaring for lack of better terms. So I thought that was really interesting uh, that they have such deep voices, but they can also make rumbles and grunts and of course snorts at each other or at other animals uh, that are approaching them. And then calves are similar to like cows. They make a bleeding sound uh, and it, it it's higher in pitch, but of course as they mature, it'll get lower and deeper. But muskox as their name basically signifies is they have a lot of communication that they do through chemical signals. And, mm-hmm. 
And what I found really fascinating was, okay, musk ox must produce musk, right? Like a, like a muskrat or a musk deer, things like that. And so the first smell that they create is from their preorbital glands. And that secretion is going to be light and sweet odor. So it sounds delicious, if you will. Uh, and through chemical analysis, which, yes, I dorked out on, and I'll spare you the details, but in general, yeah, yeah. the extract, the different chemicals, the cholesterol, lactones, aldehydes, that made this light, sweet, ethereal odor is not the same chemical compounds that are found in traditional musk. And I'll talk about musk in a second. The second odor that they create is a little more stinkier, and that's going to give the funk smell. And that is produced by the prepucial glands of the male genitalia. And they basically distribute it all over their belly and their fur, those long guard hairs, uh, via their urine. And that one, once again, under chemical analysis, has a lot of benzoic acid and just these other straight-chain hydrocarbons that definitely attract females, for sure. That's the whole goal of it. But once again, the chemical composition is not the exact same as musk. And so mm -hmm. when we think about, once again, a muskrat, a musk shrew, musk duck, all these animals that are known to create musk, I had to, of course, dork out and learn a little bit more about musk. And musk isn't stinky. Musk, in general, has basal notes that are found in perfumes. In fact, there's numerous plants that emit very similar chemical compounds that overall smell good. I guess if you think like, you know, maybe male cologne or something. So some might argue that the musk ox is actually incorrectly named because they don't tr truly produce musk, but they do, right, they right. do produce a sweet smell out of the preorbital glands. And then they got that stinky funk that only the females love coming from the other end. So I just thought that that was really, really interesting. And I uh, it w I went down a whole musk road. <laughs> I won't bore you yeah, with yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But anyways, so that is one of the ways that they are going to attract females during breeding season. And it's another way that they're going to warn other males that this is their territory or that they're more dominant, things like that. And lastly, Chris, the other ways that they communicate with each other, of course, are through tactile communication, pushing, shoving things like that, and then also sh displaying. So the males are going to look tough by swinging their heads, walking sideways. And most of this tough guy appearance, of course, is going to happen during the breeding season when the males need to compete doing their headbutts and other things um, for female to win females. And before a big fight, a male will rub his preorbital glands on his uh, legs he'll make loud noises it's just it's a real display which i would love to see in the wild from a very very safe distance and yes, then basically yes, yeah. yeah they and then the males will back up about 45 meters apart and just full on charge each other and crash their head bosses the, that that horn piece uh, in the middle of their head together and may the best ox win right so, yeah, yeah. yeah it, but it, luckily, uh, researchers say it's rarely fatal and older bulls know they can't compete with young, like the middle-aged bulls and the young bulls know, I mean, they know, they know who they can compete with and not. Um, 
it's usually around six to eight years old. That's the successful kind of age for a male. Um, and once dominance is determined, the bull, the male will attempt to keep all of his females close together. He'll defend them. Uh, and then he'll breed them multiple times, uh, during the breeding season until the female becomes pregnant. And when she is pregnant, she'll gestate for about seven and a half to eight and a half months, giving birth in the spring when the food sources resources are high, which is nice. And they usually give birth to just one calf. Uh, twins are very rare, similar to the horse and the cow world. Mm -hmm. uh, and calves are standing and nursing within 45 minutes. And calves weigh about 10 to 11 kilograms at birth which that is pretty small. Tiny. Like, yeah. It's very, tiny. It's very, yeah. very charming. 30, very, 40 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. Uh, and calves, as Chris mentioned, they are up there on the most adorable yeah. hoofstock it's calf list. Oh my gosh. And they're born with a layer of that baby wool, that under wool, the, um, the quiviet. Um, and they're dependent on their moms, of course, for a long time for, milk and then food. And they usually stay with their mom for at least through the first winter, if not longer. And calves will start eating food within a few weeks, but they do, they, yeah, they'll nurse up to a year if they can. Um, and then of course the calves just follow their mom and hide underneath their skirt of guard hairs, especially if there's a predator, which is just darling. Uh, and yeah, and it's just up to the moms to, teach the calves all about the social dynamics of the herd, how to find food, how to dig for food in the wintertime and not to dig in really deep snow. They have to dig in like shallow snow. Um, and so the males, they don't have direct care taking of the calves. However, they're so social and they do this defensive behavior against predators that, I mean, they definitely help protect the young, which is a very key, uh, key part, especially, uh, that calves are often the ones that are picked off by wolves and things like that. So what's also really important to note as far as their life cycle is that female musk ox typically breed only every other year. And remember they only produce one calf and then that calf has to survive to, to, uh, to adulthood. So it's really interesting. And, and of course, it's probably due to lack of resources and the, the care that they put into rearing the calf. So, so I definitely give Mama Muskox two thumbs up as far as her behavior goes. Um, she's really, yeah, she's really, she's really protecting them and teaching them how to survive in this harsh climate. Yeah, she is. She is. And just have a baby in that harsh climate and feed it. And All of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's uh, uh, let alone a really cute baby to boot too, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and then when you talk about, you know, having a calf every other year, it's – so their generation interval is a little bit longer than some of the others and they, and they can't rebound. But, you know, like I said, least concern right now, you know, numbers maybe over 100,000, been reintroduced to Alaska, Europe, and Siberia. So, so that's good news for them. But, you know, again, the Arctic, we, we know what's going on there. And they, and they do have low genetic diversity. Because remember, they almost went extinct 12,000 years ago. So like the cheetah, they don't have, you know, a huge variety in their genes there. So just got to keep our eyes on them. But, oh, I love them. I love them. And then so this week, Angie, I, I wanted to highlight an organization. And this is the Alaska Wildlife Conservation Center. And we haven't covered them before. 
And it's a sanctuary preserving Alaska's wildlife. And so they do education, they do outreach, and they also do animal care. And they do get in muskox that are abandoned, injured, whatever, and then bring them back and then re-release them sometimes. You can actually go to their website and adopt a muskox and help on its care. And so anywhere, I mean, they're asking for donations anywhere from 30 to $1,000, but they do, you know, bring in injured and stuff, uh, muskox. They have one right now called Artemis, and he was rescued in the oil fields of Prudhoe Bay, and they brought him in and they're taking care of them. So again, a, a, a wildlife conservation center up in Alaska you know, helping fighting, preserving the species up there. And again, we know it's a hot spot on the planet as far as conservation. So shout out to them. And if you can support them, go and check it out. And we'll put their, their website is alaskawildlife.org. So easy to remember, good little organization doing good work up there and kudos to, to them. And then finally, you know, conservation tip, like I said, muskox wool appears to be sustainable, and it's something that Angie talked about earlier. I would love to get my hands on some. So, you know, anybody listening for, for, for Christmas, muskox wool would be cool. I agree, Chris. It sounds wonderful. But honestly, the $300 should probably just go to the Alaska Wildlife Center. So I'm, I'm in Florida. <laughs> I don't true. need a hat. That's uh, true. You don't. Yeah, yeah, I know. And I'm not living up there in the Arctic. So, and, and then just the other conservation tip, Angie and I talked about this, is this idea of fast fashion. And it's, it's something that, that has caught on where you buy cheap t-shirts and shorts and skirts and, and dresses and, and whatever else, pants maybe. And then you wear them a few times and you throw them away because they're made of poor quality and they don't last long. They stain, so they stain is, really easily too. Yeah. And they're just, so they're really contributing to our, our climate change problems because, you know, not only does, you, you know, the, the carbon imprint of producing those products overseas and then the shipping, you know, either to the States or Europe or wherever you're at and, and then throwing it away, it's just a waste. It's just a waste. It's such a waste. It is. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. And it's something, it's, it's hard to combat because it's like, wow, I could pay $5 for $5 US for this t-shirt or 20. And you're like, well, why would I want to pay 20? Because trust me, it'll last yeah. longer. And, and John and I will even, even if we do have to throw something out, uh, we actually, use it as rags because we tried not to use as much paper towels and things like that. So we'll recycle some of our old clothes into rags or, or into towels uh, for the stinky dog after her bath and things like that. And it was actually cute. Uh, just tonight, my son, uh, Xander, he has, he loves just to be in socks and no shoes. So yeah. poor little guy, all of his, all of his uh, socks have holes in them. And so, <laughs> He asked for socks for Christmas, which is super, super cute. <laughs> yeah. And, but the, these recent ones he had on today, I was like, honey, I'm like, just put those in the trash. Like, they're so bad. And he mm -hmm. took them off and he was like, no. He's like, I'll put them with all the old rags so we can reuse them. And nice. I was like, good for you. But let me wash yeah. those first. <laughs> because yes. I, I, I know those, the rags are like, 
rags we like they're junky rags but they're clean they don't have your stinky yeah. stinky feet yeah. in them so but anyways yeah, yeah so so you, we try to at least re- give repurpose them and give them one more one more chance at it but once again it's, it's awesome. probably these socks were probably this fast fashion which i i think when i go buy him is so when i buy him the next bag of socks or i'm gonna i'm gonna spend more money and make sure they're higher quality yeah, that's awesome. I, Xander's the best. The green, they're the green generation. They are going to lead the way. So, Angie, earlier I've been wonder, wondering, because I didn't see it, the difference between a yak and a muskox. Well, I learned that we have to cover the yak sometime. That's going to be super fun. Um, mm-hmm. But basically, the muskox is more in the Arctic, right? Uh, and the wild yak is more native to the Himalayas. And wild yaks are primarily found in northern Tibet, um, and they extend a little bit into India. And they're actually an ancestor of the domestic yak, and they are bigger. So they're going to be bigger than the musk ox. And they are also, they don't have the, and yaks, of course, they look a little bit different, um, but they're used to living in really high altitudes. So they have all those really cool uh, different survival tactics. Um, but in general, they don't produce the musk smells or this, the different, whether it's sweet or stinky, they in general don't make as many odors as the musk ox. Okay. Okay. Well, we will, we will, I think within the year we'll cover the yak. That would probably be maybe one of our next big, uh, hose and horns, uh, section, uh, that when we, we get back to them. So, but we got to get to a reptile, you know, our buddy down in Chile gave, he, that's he, right. So we got to get to that. Anyways, great week, Angie. I'm excited for our, our species coming up as we continue our holidays uh, going into uh, the holiday season. So, uh, yeah, stay tuned. We'll be back next week with the new species. Yes, Chris, it was a lot of fun. And thank you, everyone, for listening, learning, loving, and conserving. We really appreciate you sticking around with us and hanging out and spreading the conservation love. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.